neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary and voluntary. We don't know the contrast organic. All right, folks, we are back. This is Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you could find me every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. Check us out at prn.fm. And if you want to check out any of my material, articles I'm writing out, well, it's interesting because actually the folks at PRN just informed us, uh, the hosts for various programs on the, on the show here, that or on the station here, that articles that we write, interviews we do, speaking events that we're giving that have YouTube videos and so on, they will be uploaded to the PRN site as well. So you can check out our material there. But if you're interested in some of the stuff that I'm putting out on social media, just check me out on Facebook at Vince Emanuele. We are joined in studio today by Samantha Castro, my good friend who's in town from Australia doing all kinds of really interesting things, uh, including relaxing with me and having a beer at one o'clock in the afternoon and <laughs> talking about politics and whatever else we'll talk about. So today was is a special program. Samantha has been a friend of mine for at least, I think, three and a half years now. Let's talk about what can be some of the first things we talk about here. I let's First of all, what are you doing in the States right now? What are you doing here? <laughs> why, why are you here? Um, I'm here visiting family and activist friends. I'm here to learn and listen and see where the empire's at and to see where the movement's at in terms of both environmental and social justice. And I'm also here to escape working. So, Have you met, <laughs> have you met some of the folks that you're going to meet here before? I think you said uh-huh. maybe some of them in Paris? Yes. Yeah, so last November, God, nearly a year ago, um, I went to Paris for COP21 uh, to protest COP21. And I met a heap of Americans, actually, most of them based in Portland. Uh, some of them that are currently up in North Dakota, which I won't get to see. Uh, but yeah, so I'm heading to Portland after here to talk to more activists. <laughs> All right, so this is like the relaxing portion of your trip. Yeah. But you've been to the United States before. Mm-hmm. First time I came here was just after the Gulf War started. So it was really bizarre. I walked into this militarized, crazy, um, hyper-real culture that I'd heard about. And there were yellow ribbons around all the trees and uh, everything was just crazy. And, yeah, it was really full on. But that was, you know, when I was 19, 20. So not much has changed. So pretty much any time you come to the U.S., there will be a war. Yeah. And there will be yellow ribbons around the tree. Yeah. Yeah, and I came back in um, a few years after that, and I think Bosnia was happening around right. then. Right. And then I came back the year in May before 9-11 happened. Oh, goodness. So this has been your first time in the States since 9-11. Yeah. So what are the first things that you <laughs> think of? Don't hold back, but also don't be too mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, no. Yeah, tell, what tell like, what are some of the first, your first impressions? So okay, back here. Yeah. The, uh, this many years later, mm-hmm. and the, 
also from your perspective as an activist, as someone who's out there trying to make a difference in the world, you know, you're seeing things I've noticed, you know, if you travel with activists or if you're speaking with activists when you're traveling, it's a much different perspective often yeah. than say just you're not like a tourist here to see museums and mm. whatever hang out at the sears tower in chicago or like catch a bears game like that's, someone tried to take me there and i i balked yeah that's okay yeah <laughs> i don't like those kind of places when i try. no neither do i so um yeah i, I guess the, the one thing that has really struck me um which i guess between my my first trip here and my second or third trip here before this time, a whole heap of, you know, racial stuff exploded not long after I had been here around Rodney King in the 90s. And I don't know, I thought I would come back and find as much as there is all this death and destruction going on that there had been a shift in the mentality and the language of segregation. Mm. And what I was really struck by in Chicago was staying with Mexicans Mm -hmm. and I met quite a lot of other Mexicans while I was with them, um, but also people that I met with you, Mm -hmm. uh, is each person feels like they need to explain to me how Chicago is laid out. And and in the process of explaining that, the word that they've all used is segregated. Yeah. And I found that so interesting. It was like, wow, it. I don't remember the word segregation being used when I was in Chicago in 1990 mm. in that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, in some ways it feels like things are going backwards. And I think what I said to one of your friends the other night was I, I really want people in America to also understand how impacted my country is by um, what happens in America. Right. And I don't mean just by what happens with empire. Right. I mean what happens with movement and activism and organising because what you guys do or don't do impacts what we're able to do or not do because we're so embedded in into the empire and foreign policy and mm-hmm. um, financial. Well, even domestic policy. Yeah, well, it influences. Because, like, I've noticed the last <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, well, yeah. so I've been – so for those who are listening who – I mean, I've mentioned this probably before, but I've been to Australia four times in the last three years – each time I've gone, I've been able to stay there for, I think, about at least six to eight weeks, if not more. And what I've found just through my conversations with activists, people like yourself, reading the newspaper, listening to the radio, so on. What's interesting to me is not only the ways in which we were intertwined through the empire, through foreign policy, surveillance policy, drone technology, all of this stuff, and we can get into that, but also just the discourses around domestic policy yeah the conversation the narrative yeah. the, the way in which these politicians are speaking the the uh crudeness with which they speak to i mean all of this from the people i've spoke with is like a reminder that even in your culture is becoming more and more in some ways like the united states and, and the yeah. toxic elements like yeah, the toxic yeah, elements yeah. of that i mean i think it it always has been in my lifetime so um i think maybe that shift began in my parents, the sort of baby boomer post-war generations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's almost like Australia is an adolescent that doesn't know how to grow up, right? So you have the motherland, which is the UK empire, which we're still attached through both legally, politically, all sorts of ways, culturally. Mm-hmm. And then there's the father empire over here, which is you guys. So it's... Yeah, and then the true history of what Australia is, of course, lies in the 
pack of lies and, and murder it's been built on in terms of colonialism and extractive behaviours. Um, but, yeah, it's almost like we're stuck in the middle and we don't quite know what to do. But what I do know is that after the Second World War, there was a distinctive turn in understanding that the, the US was kind of going to be our new major ally. But it was only in um, really in John Howard's era of politics, so after 9-11. So our Prime, Prime Minister was in America on 9-11 and got ushered somewhere with all the other heads of states, etc. So he had this real emotional involvement, and he really liked George Bush, which is deeply concerning on so many levels. Um, but that's when we truly decided to embed our domestic and our foreign policy with America. Prior to that, there was this very strong sense of, much like New Zealand, that Australia should hold some semblance of being an independent thinking nation, even though your culture was, like, saturating into my world as I was growing up, probably more so than either my parents' generation um, because of technology. So, yeah, I think it's really, really weird because I think um, 9-11 brought with it a whole range of changes in our relationship that have had long-lasting impacts on trade on foreign policy even on domestic laws around extradition and surveillance and you know all of those kind of things and and it's really obvious that what we do now is we follow your lead in the stripping of civil liberties militarizing of components of the police force all of those things when i see that happen here i know in 12 months time it's going to happen in australia and that's how much quicker it is you know it was very very different 30 years ago so it it's accelerated, time. yeah, it's really accelerated. And now you guys have got Marines permanently based in Australia. We're just, we're just totally integrated as a client state into America. So Australians follow American politics quite, quite closely, really, because what happens here affects us quite dramatically and quite sort of stratospherically. Yeah, no, that blew my mind. I mean, when I was in Australia, I was meeting not only activists who knew more almost about American politics than they did the Australian politics, or as much, I'll say, yeah. but also, like, just regular Australians. I mean, I could, well, not that activists aren't regular Australians. I'm saying, like, <laughs> say, people who aren't uh, engaged with political movements and social movements and so on. Like, I was meeting a lot of these people who were also, you know, they're kind of just reminding me how closely this yeah. that they follow the United States and they yeah. knew everything that was happening. Yeah. In many ways, yeah. there's Australians that know a lot more about what's happening in the U.S. than U.S. citizens. <laughs> I don't doubt that. Like, I actually do not, do not doubt that. And, you know, and I agree with you, too. There are a lot of Australians that could identify who your two presidential candidates are that couldn't identify more than one or two Australian politicians. That's yeah, wild. Yeah, in their own country. So, you know, it's crazy. And and some some of that rubs off on the way politics happens in Australia mm-hmm. because in Australia we don't um, get to vote for a president. The parties are the parties and they elect their leader and it's really not up to us. It's up to the members of that party to elect the leader. But the way the politics in public opinion have been influencing um, the way it plays out in elections is it's more and more about the popularity of the leader rather than the substance of the policies of, of the parties. And, in fact, they're both, they're both completely to the right and they're the same, you know. Yeah. So it's, 
it's because it's like this attempt to be like an American without changing our political system. Right. Um, but what we need to do is actually, you know, get rid of the empires and become a republic and be much more independent. Then we could have both. You know? Well, it's interesting because we. Like parts of your system are actually less democratic than our system. Like the like the war powers resolution. Yeah. Like that's something that's really wild to me. Yeah. Like you don't have to vote. Not that we do. I mean, that's clear. I mean, we'll bomb Syria or Libya, so on and so forth, mm. without declaring war officially yeah. or without taking it to Congress for a serious debate, if it would indeed even be a serious debate. Um, which of course I think we probably would doubt. But nonetheless, mm. so yeah, I mean, I find that interesting. Mm. Yeah. You know, like that to me seems very undemocratic, um, mm. but also, I don't know. I mean, I think this would be something, I mean, is this something that more Australians think about? I mean, is this, do you think it would even matter? Because I've heard from anti-war activists in Australia, well, we have to change the war powers mm. resolutions. But mm. then my, you know, my rebuttal to that playing devil's advocate is, well, in the United States, we have all kinds of laws about when and where we're supposed to send people to combat and mm. bomb people or whatever none of that shit is followed and none of the yeah. shit in the UN is followed yeah. Yeah. so this is I don't know I'm always skeptical when I find and I find this to be like a very liberal argument anyway I'm rambling too much because this we have you here can I, <laughs> so go can ahead I, can I just can I just respond to that yeah oh yeah um, the the war power powers is yeah basically um, the Prime Minister and his most trusted ministers get to decide whether we go to war. Um, and that that is absolutely undemocratic. And I really think that um, it does need to be changed. But do does the average Australian care about that? I don't think so. You know, I mean, there were huge demonstrations for the Iraq war. You know, hundreds of thousands of people came out on the streets. And then our Prime Minister got on television, John Howard, at the time, and basically acted like angry daddy and said, how dare you think you know what's best for the country? I know what's best for the country. You elected me. I have a mandate. I'm doing what's best for the country and we're going to war. Right. So, which is really paternalistic and, and all sorts of other things within that about John Howard's um, own right-wing political positioning. Uh, but... At least if it goes through Parliament or your Congress, at least there is an opportunity for debate, right? And, and I think that that's, that's what stifles the capacity to actually have people interested in who makes that choice because they never hear anything about it. It's just this thing that happens over there. And the average Australian kind of agrees with John Howard and goes, well, that's why I vote. That's why I have to vote. I have to vote. You make me vote. It's compulsory. Mm -hmm. And when I voted, I want them to do their job. So there's this real um, passivity to the Australian population in being politically active uh, for, their, for, for choices like that. They see it as the system. The system is a representative democracy. We're forced to vote. We vote, and then we trust that those people... Are forced to vote. Yeah, we are. It's compulsory. Oh, God. I mean, what happens if you, you don't can, vote? Well, because people in the United fines. States are arguing this. This was yeah, like what fines. happened. Okay, so how much is the fine? Um, if it's a national, like a federal election, it's it's like a few hundred dollars. It's not okay. it's not cheap. Right, right, right. But if it's a local election, it's like, I don't know, $50 or something. Uh, how often are elections? Every 
roughly three and a half years. Yeah, and when there are elections, this is something I want people to pay attention to who live in the United States because this is fucking madness what has been going on for the last 15, 16 months. How long are the elections? Um, so we had a really long election, this, this one that just happened in July, and it went for nearly, God, it was, it was quite long. It was maybe eight weeks. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Eight weeks. And it was intense. It was like we were all so over it. Within that eight weeks. I mean, there was... <laughs> you were over it in eight weeks. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of political maneuvering uh, for the three or four months before the actual... Times that by election. eight. Yeah, I know. And that is where we're at. Well, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't know how you get right. anything done. Right. I right. don't know how any... Well, it impacts movements, Yeah, too. exactly. How does anyone actually right. focus on, right. on not putting out just spot fires, but actually climbing up the hill to see what's going on? All right, let's talk about that. So, what you do... Who are you? <laughs> this defines your life, right? This is the only thing you do, so there's no other aspect of your life that's worth talking about except for the fact <laughs> that, you, that you work for... Oh, my God. No, I'm joking, of course. <laughs> I'm joking. But still, that, that is what we're here to talk about because we have limited time unless the next hour wants to give me their hour. Nonetheless, what is it that you do in Australia? Because we have to get back to that because we are talking about right. activism and... Oh, I, I, it leads into that. I'm like, <clears throat> you see where I'm going. Yeah. And we started backwards. I didn't ask you about who you are and people. For those who are listening, we're speaking with Samantha Castro <laughs> on the Progressive Radio Network. It's hilarious. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, all right. Um, what, what I do, I work for an environmental uh, community, grassroots-based organization called Friends of the Earth. You actually have a Friends of the Earth in the US, and they're my colleagues. Uh, we're in 76 countries around the world. We're the biggest environmental federation of grassroots activists. We have over 2 million members and over 5 million supporters. And we have a really unique philosophy in terms of, for Australia, I don't know about the rest of the world, uh, which is... We believe that envir- the environment and social economic justice can't be uh, sort of separated out. They're, they're completely interlinked. And, and the philosophic basis of how we campaign is based on those two things cannot be separated. You can't have environmental justice without economic justice. They have to go together. Um, so it's a really unique organisation, particularly in Australia. I work for them. I'm officially the operations coordinator and, um, in Melbourne. In Melbourne, right. yes, in Melbourne. And I guess what we, what makes us really unique is that we believe, uh, one, that direct action is a really necessary component of organising and activism. And secondly, we're flat structured, which is even quite unique within the Federation of Friends of the Earth around the world. We're kind of like a little crazy experiment down under that is quite different to, to other countries. So direct that, let's move back. So mm. two things to talk about here, direct action and flat structure. Talk about, mm. first talk about your flat structure of the organization. Okay. Because I want to get into why you think direct, or why you think, I think, many other people think that mm. direct action is a sort of intricate part of what we need to be doing as activists. But yeah. it's not a philosophy, like direct action is no, a tactic. It's a tactic. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so by flat structure, I mean there are no bosses, there is no CEO, there is no 
manager. There is no, I don't know, there's no structure in terms of who has authority. We use um, collective consensus decision-making. We work in... All the time? All the time. Okay. Yeah. We work in collectives, small groups of people that are focused in particular areas of um, the organisation. So I guess if you put together all the people that we that I work with, uh, that covers everything from finance to membership to campaigning to boards um, in traditional, I guess, um, organisations. And the other thing that is really unique is that we are all paid exactly the same amount of money. We believe in um, wage equity. So whether you clean the toilets or cook the food in the cafe downstairs or are the primary, you know, uh, elder campaigner in the building, we're all paid exactly the same amount of money per hour of what we do, which eliminates a lot of the intimidation of people being able to input to decision-making. Um, and we make decisions together on everything from, I don't know, uh, what colour are we going to paint the building to what is folk going to do to smash the fossil fuel industry. And everyone is allowed input to that. And then they break back into collective structures where we then work on coal, renewable energy, forests, uh, koalas, uh, pesticides, herbicides, nuclear. Our nuclear campaign has been running for nearly 40 years. It's the oldest running campaign. So what if you're part of a group of people who don't really give a fuck about what color the building's going to be painted? Do you have to be a part of the consensus decision no so we divide no, it up. <laughs> no, no, we, no but that's a really, it's a really good question though we divide it up into different meetings okay so, so there's want, like subcommittees yeah so but is every is every friends of the earth organization run like this or no, is this just melbourne or just in australia the entire of australia so there are there are six groups and 16 affiliate members who all adhere to the same philosophy and concept and okay. practice and we're some of the most successful campaigns in Australia at the moment. Um, and they all adhere to that same process across Australia. But no, like, for example, I don't know, FO in the US, and I know definitely FO in the UK, completely hierarchical. They have CEOs, managers, you know, really sort of tree-structured conceptual things. We are probably considered in Australia the poorest, <laughs> the poorest environmental group in Australia, but we've had the biggest wins in terms of saving things or changing legislation or actually influencing how policy is created um, or stopping fracking, all those kind of things, uh, then, you know, NGOs that have million-dollar budgets. Right. So, and we run mainly lesson. on volunteers. We only pay roles in key positions to keep the work safe, sure. safe and ticking over, you sure. know. The, the philosophical component really requires us to have many more volunteers than we do have paid people. So talk to me about some of the campaigns that you've won recently. Because I know there's a fracking campaign that's been recently won. Yeah. I know there's some others as well. Yeah, so Friends of the Earth in Australia has a philosophy that if you are going to resist the problem, you must always um, help provide a solution to that. So we try and run tandem campaigns so one is called Quick Coal and one is called Yes to Renewables. So we believe that renewables are the fastest way to transition out of the fossil fuel industry 
it's not perfect. We need to go somewhere else after that. But it's a way to buy us time and to give us a transitional pathway, both out of the environmental sort of fossil fuel construction, but also out of the monopolised sort of neoliberal capitalist structure. You can decentralise things as you do that. So both of those campaigns won big time this year for us in Australia. Uh, Quick Coal uh, managed after five years of campaigning to get a permanent ban on fracking in Victoria. And they wanted to basically frack our food bowl is what they wanted to do. Um, So we spent five years with people living in those areas um, that, you know, many government officials would call extreme green radical environmentalists. And uh, they moved to these farming communities that are really traditionally politically conservative and old, you know, and old school. And they moved to those communities and began talking with these farmers about how our problems were the same. And so what happened in the end was the farmers and the radical greenies fell in love with each other and came up with this amazing structure and plan to basically shut down the entire access to the food bowl in Victoria. And it took five years, but they won this year. The state government, um, after I think 100 communities, declared themselves coal and coal seam gas-free, which sewed up enough of the food bowl that the the rest of the communities were kind of starting to jump on board. Uh, So, yeah, the government was wise and said, okay, we're going to ban fracking. So that was huge because fracking is a massive problem in Australia. Um, So where else are they (coughs) fracking now? They're fracking everywhere. Except for Victoria. uh, Yeah, and, and they're doing it in places that Australia has really vast amounts of water that are underground that cover the whole of Queensland and go down into New South Wales. And they feed into the main river system that feeds the entire population, agricultural food bowl from Queensland to South Australia to Adelaide, so straight through Victoria where I live, all the way down out to the ocean. So four states it goes across. When they frack around the underground water in Queensland, the chemicals seep into the underground water system and poison the entire East Coast water supply um, through four states. And Australia is the most arid continent on the planet. You know, we can't afford to not have water. So... (laughs) Oh, oh my. It's okay. Sorry, I'm not laughing that we can't afford to not have water my phone. No, it was... My phone just started buzzing. Um... So, yeah, so it's a huge deal. So fracking's enormous and it's part of what's being sold as the new gold rush in Australia. Right, right. They're bringing in multinational corporations and they're saying you can make a shitload of money in the next 50 years. That's about as long as it lasts. So it's really yeah. short-term, short-sighted greed. Um, that's total. I mean, what's really wild is that mm-hmm. like each individual well yeah. is like, what, two years or something? Yeah, yeah. 36 months at the yeah. most, they say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's 40, I think 44,000 of them around Queensland. So, yeah, so we did a lot of work and we used a really different flat-structured organising style to achieve that. And then the Yes to Renewables campaign, um, we got this, you know, Tony Abbott, I think when you were last in Australia, was Tony Abbott still in power? Mm, um, last fall, no, 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 I was there when Malcolm 
just yeah. had just taken power. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so Tony Abbott, who's you know, but I was there when Tony was in power. You were well. the time before, yeah. So he's you know incredibly. Uh, the comparison would be. I've seen three prime ministers. Not to interrupt you, but I've seen Julia. Right. I have right. been there under Julia. I have been there under Tony and Malcolm. Right. Okay. An illustrious trio. Yeah. But anyway, what but, were you saying now? Um, Tony's one of Tony's primary. He's like a tea party goals. guy. Tea party. He thinks climate change is a hoax. But that's a perfect example of what you were saying earlier. Because so Tony Abbott comes up in that era, right after the Tea Party takes power in Congress in the United States. Yeah, or this tea party. He's also times. a religious, like he's totally right, just right, of right. that really far right, really fundamentalist Christian perspective. So he's had a long association, I think, with American sort of fundamental Christian people. He doesn't believe, you know, in abortion, blah blah. Right. Climate like, change. Climate change. Right. Yeah, and um, yeah, abortion, so he, evolution. He, yeah. So he said about undoing all of the environmental. Um, policy and legislative work that we had done over, you know, the last 20 years. He tried to undo that in his, his term in power. And he did a lot of damage, like a lot of damage. And, you know, Malcolm Temple is continuing his policies and, and the deconstruction of environmental law. So what it says to me is that if you change the laws and, and you see that as merely of like the end of the victory, like, yay, we won, we changed the law, then you, you're going to get a shock because, you know, four years later somebody comes into power and can change the law back. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like to get true change to do something like shutting down the fossil fuel industry and getting to sustainable, renewable planet, it has to be such a... Um, full-on change of understanding of how we interrelate with each other and the planet, that those laws would just never be considered or acceptable, like for Australia, the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It has to become something that is morally just beyond conceptualization of putting into effect as government policy. So part, part of what immediately comes to mind because I know it has a big influence on your worldview, your ethics, your morals, and so on, your activism, is I would assume from your perspective, obviously you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would I would think that this is where a conceptualization of feminism would play a role in redeveloping these morals and framework for society where people wouldn't couldn't view the earth as something to violate, destroy, mm. extract from, make money from, and so on. Yeah. Because this sounds similar yeah. to our friend Derek, who mm. also would argue that we need to reimagine or re-envision human relationship to earth, our understanding of earth, what it is, the mm. natural environment, living things. Yeah. I mean, I think we need to start by reimagining our relationship to each other just as humans. You know, I think <laughs> like so many people can't even deal with, you know, treating the same species uh, in a loving, respectful way, you know, and children of the same species in a loving, respecting way, e.g., you know, Syria. Segregation. Segregation. <laughs> like, yeah, there's so many things. Um 
And, but I think in, in the process of that, we need to understand that we are not the only entities on the planet. And um, so I agree with Derek on that level. I think there is a real need to reconsider our relationship. I guess where I disagree is I, I actually think humans um, are worthy of that same thing. And I know some of the deep green stuff, you know, would say, well, screw the humans, save the planet. I don't quite meld with that completely. I actually see us all as living beings on the planet and I think we should be respectful of all of each other. So, yeah, in that respect, I think it's it has to it can't come out of the same patriarchal mentality that has created the, you know, disaster and destruction and violence. It, it just can't. How can that I, I don't, you know, I don't understand how you can go, here's, here's a solution that applies exactly the same, you know, base, fundamental, indoctrinated values to solve something. It, does, it doesn't work like that. It just, it's just always a constant replication that slightly fixes some of the inequity so that some of us feel like maybe we can make it through, you know. Whereas I think for me, feminism in its most um, non-American form, Oh, oh, well. <laughs> well, you know how I feel well, about the split between French and American feminism. Oh, there was a split. You know, there was a split between the French and the American feminist thought, and I'm probably more of the French than the American. I think American feminism has been very much about, um, you know, burning the bra and getting out of the kitchen and being equal to men, and I think what that does is actually feed women back into the co-opted patriarchal system so they can be compliant within it and aspire to one day be equal. And I just... But I don't you think that's that. what's going on in France right now? Yeah, quite possibly. I'm talking about French Excuse feminism me. theory. I'm not talking about you. France. As I got in... you. Well, why'd they both end up the same then? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because France has become so much more like America as well in so many it's ways. When, but they have a, re- a pretty reactionary history. They do. One they of do. the... What's a good book that I read on this topic? Alain Badu, mm-hmm. Sarkozy. If you read that book, mm-hmm. for me, it was an interesting insight into the sort of back and forth in French history. Yeah. This like pendulum swing between extremely reactionary ideological political movements mm-hmm. and extremely left-wing political movements. Yeah. All right. Anyway, we're, we're not here to talk about French shit. Alright. <laughs> so, so no, yeah, so let me get back to let me get back to like some some things Stop that Stop distracting me down. I know. Well we've well we've only got twenty five minutes left. So all right, all right. let me ask you about more mm. about activism. Mm. What are you seeing that's working and that isn't working? <laughs> like what's because you get to travel, you get to speak with people like you're part of an international, as you mentioned, seventy six countries that uh, Friends of the Earth operates within. So, I mean, you're talking with people internationally on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. You were just in Paris. You are now in the United States. Mm-hmm. You are in Australia. Mm-hmm. And for those people who wouldn't maybe be aware in Australia, of course, there's an influx of Asian influence. This is one of the great contradictions in your society because you have trade relations and business relations with Southeast Asia and yes. China in yes. a very serious way. Yeah, they're our biggest training partners. Right, and 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 culturally, and 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 through immigration as well. Mm. So, for Americans who are listening to this program, the way 
Mexican largely, but also other Latino cultures and politics have played an influence in the United States is similar to the way in which various Asian cultures, particularly Southeast Asia, play a role in Australian politics, yes. including immigration policy, etc. Yes. Um, so, what the heck was my question? I don't know. <laughs> You're the one asking. So that's a big. <laughs> so that's a big contradiction, and then I wanted to get to. Well, oh, oh yeah. So you get to travel. You get to you get to work in a very multicultural atmosphere. Mm-hmm. What do you think is working? What are you hearing from people that's working? What are you hearing that's not working? Because here's my concern, and we talk all the time. <laughs> Some people like Samantha and Roberto, who I have yet to have on the program, but I'm assuming he's listening to this show and he needs to get on <laughs> the damn program because he's also. I mean, you to me, you were like the female version of Roberto. You were the female <laughs> Australian version of the Mexican American Roberto. Roberto, is... I hope you're hearing this. this is... <laughs> oh it's a great compliment because they're the two two of the best organizers I know involved with great work since I've met both of them. And I met Roberto about 10 years ago. And, you know, we always, you guys to me, both of you are like, and others that I know, are fill this very positive role in my life where you make me want to believe that we should continue to struggle, that you make me want to continue to be engaged, um, to continue to want to encourage other people to be engaged because my inclination is that we are effed in the royal effed and that we uh, really need to kind of brace for like this impact of craziness that's going to come and I envision like a world of Mad Max slash Waterworld slash Escape from New York and that's like (laughs) the future to me right now. So. I love people like you and people like Roberto because you remind me that there is so much going on and that people are thinking about these things on such a deep level. And there's others out there. I mean, I've had people like Thomas Frank on the program. He's another one, you know, another person. Um, there's so many I could name. I, don't, I actually can't even go down a list because there's plenty of people. But, you know, you folks stick out to me, people like Kim Sipes. Um, so what is work? That, that was a five to seven minute version of what is what is working and what is not working and what do you think when you're talking to activists in Europe or the United States, what are the similarities and differences you're seeing, you know? Oh, that's such a big question. Okay. Um, well, you, you know what I think on this, but for people that don't, I guess I, I really believe that the concept of mass mobilization, turning up, you know, for a big rally, hoping that's somehow going to influence policy shifts or behaviour change or, you know, um, the coming climate disaster is pretty ridiculous. You know, it's, it's, it's not worked. It's never worked. It hasn't worked. So I'm much um, more of a believer of uh, different forms of direct action uh, but also decentralizing how we how we organize and how we work together and, and sort of getting beyond the idea of thinking that having a hundred thousand people on the streets means that your issue has somehow you know cracked anything you know because quite often it, it changes nothing whereas like I was explaining to you with the fracking at, in Victoria, that was a hundred small communities where ninety eight percent of the communities were surveyed and agreed to actively, actively participate to stop mining companies coming onto their land. So we taught them how to lock onto gates, how to build tripods, 
Uh, we help them write letters. We help them get the council on board. And then the whole community declared itself together saying, we will fight any mining truck that comes into this town. We don't care what the laws say about mining. So it was the preparation of, of civil disobedience amongst dairy farmers, right? We're talking men in their 70s that usually vote for the other side that are really confused as to why they're now actually in an agreement with this bunch of greenies. Um, and that was more effective than having 100 protests, right. okay? It's, it's deep. It takes much longer. It, it requires communities committing to engage with each other and have those kitchen table meetings to be prepared to actually show up and form relationships with each other. So they become more resilient. And the more resilient they became, the more they started to see that maybe they could actually do something about this. And the more skills that we gave them um, to actually say, you can prevent this truck, which in Australia, a mining truck has the right to drive onto your land and frack, right? And so we, we had people locking their gates was what it was called. I declare I will lock my gate. And what people saw on the public face was a heap of people on social media declaring they're locking their gate. But the real, the deep, the deep seating work was in what we did with them to mobilise the community, to actively work together. And then we handed the campaign to them and said, it's yours. We didn't have our name all over it. We didn't, you know, and those communities started working with the next community and then they shared the knowledge to the next community. And before you knew, the government was hearing there's 150 communities. That's like the most of, that's most of Victoria suddenly sewn up by people who are prepared to physically, 70-year-old farmers and their wives, lock themselves to gates. Um, and that's a form of direct action. Mm-hmm. But it used both really deep sort of communication work and physical, you know, we're going to be civilly disobedient work. And I think that's a lot more effective than this conceptualization of, you know, showing up on mass somewhere and listening to speakers. And then everyone goes home and nobody does anything. So, so when I travel you- around, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the things that have worked are things that have actually engaged from a, a bottom-up perspective of local community right. and that have used a decentralised, um, flat-structured model where everyone is empowered that goes from group to group to create a network and that is focused on achieving the same outcome and, mm-hmm. and committed to that outcome. So those things seem to work not only here, it's been a really big movement in the UK And in Germany, it's been the same. They've been applying a combination of civil disobedience and direct action with really deep community generation work. Um, But are they mutually exclusive? So my question would be, are they mutually exclusive insofar as protests and mass mobilizations couldn't be used as a way to highlight and or promote even, um, let's say, uh, direct actions or maybe even underground actions? Yeah, sure. I mean... You know, those kind of big, I don't know about you, but when I go to those protests, I feel like I'm there with all the people I know that have self-selected to be there. If it's a really huge one, it's like, oh, there's a heap of mums and dads and people you don't normally see. But we're all talking the same thing. We're all doing the same thing. And and if anything comes out, out of it, it might be like, 
text your phone number to this database so that we can send you emails to donate to our organization, mm. right, so that we can do more and better work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that it's great that those people get to see each other and all talk to each other. Well, it's often boring, but, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, totally, I don't mean to jump in. It's totally there, boring. But, I mean, we've had some local <laughs> events lately where I've yeah. just been like, Jesus fucking Christ, please. Oh, no. I mean, if I have to go to another leftist event <laughs> where, I mean, we had an event recently where someone started singing Solidarity Forever and then there was someone else who wanted to sing no. This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land. And I just, I mean, I'm to the I mean, this is my personal rant for the day because I, I wanted to, like, maximize Samantha's commentary on this program. Probably got about 50 out of the 60 minutes will be Samantha, but this is the two or three of those 10 that you're going to have to listen to me. And one of the things I can't stand any fucking more is just the boring, like, oh, God, just this boring. Like, and I don't say boring. I am, first of all, I am never bored in my personal life. I'm never bored doing any other thing. It's just, like, when I go to these events... It is boring. It's like, yeah. oh, fuck, I've heard it all before. Yeah. I've heard all yeah. the speeches before. Yeah. All the songs. Like, shouldn't we make activism more engaging? Like, shouldn't this be something? And this is, we, we were talking about it earlier. One of my beefs with electoral activism is that it doesn't allow us this level of creativity that I think other mm-hmm. forms of activism does. So with electoral activism, it's like, here's your marching orders, here's the talking points, here's the candidate, yeah. this is our objective. It's really easy. A equals B equals C, boom, that's mm-hmm. it. Um, how do you think we can make the kind of activism we're talking about, which is different to that activism? Although, again, I think... I. I would argue also, like, maybe with the electoral activism, there could be a component of the movement that has to do with electoral activism. My argument against spending too much time with electoral activism right now is that it seems as though we're running out of time. Yeah. So it's like the kind of time it would take to build a third party, which would take probably several decades, if we were being honest. Maybe a decade to two, 10 10 to 20 years is too long compared to what we're going to be dealing with 10, 20 years from now. Yeah, I agree completely. So anyway, I don't even know where, I, I, mean, I guess part of this question is how do we make activism more interesting, a little more fun, more engaging, <laughs> but then also, you know, we need people to be serious. Like we need people to realize that this is what we're facing mm. um, and we want people to be engaged, but mm. we also want people to, you know, um, understand that the situation is very serious. So I see a disconnect with the traditional left. Like the biggest gap I see with traditional left is mm. Marxist, anarchists, so on and so forth, is this ecology, like this this deep green vision, which I think people should have and which I think is obviously like essential for the context that we're living in. But it seems like a huge gap. Like the, the traditional left doesn't know how to deal with the fact that we have a limited amount of time yeah. and that this does come down to like biological, ecological limits and realities mm-hmm. that like that there's something out there that's going to dictate our future more than just what we think of what we do the institutions we create and now i've talked for too long <laughs> so go ahead all right so i that's a really interesting question because i think actually part of the problem is structural and part of it is um what what we're prepared to do so i don't know about in America, but in Australia, with the rare exception of actually Friends of the Earth, um, <clears throat> most of the environmental NGOs are reliant on government grants, funding. Um, they're tied in some way 
into the political system and Friends of the Earth is also a charitable organisation and while we don't take money from the government, um, we are bound by rules as well. So those rules, and particularly on those organisations that receive money from the government, are designed to ensure that they they engage sort of, I don't know, for 80% in a awareness raising and just sort of, you know, um, protests and forums um, or they're doing research or producing reports um, or having protests. See, if you think of direct action as a scale, protest is like over here, down on, you know, one. But it's a form of direct action, but it's down over here on a sliding scale. They don't want anyone going past the symbolic sliding scale and moving up to like, shit, I don't know, blockading a river or locking onto something or refusing to participate in part of the system so it crashes. So the level that they're allowed to engage with is bound to their funding, is my point. And well, how about something like sabotage? <clears throat> I don't mean to jump in. <laughs> sabotage. Yes. I mean, we're, I'm not trying to... What sort of sabotage? I'm not trying to mean? get you in trouble. I'm not yeah, sure. So, where are you going with this? So, <laughs> <laughs> what sort of sabotage do you mean? Jeez. Well, like, um, we've got about... Damaging equipment? Or, okay, so let's say... Like writing a let, fake media release and crashing the stock market? Or, well, that would, that would be great. But that's not... Do that. but yeah, well, that's a good one too. But I, let's say let's say damaging equipment. Let's uh, say... Um, like disabling... Going after infrastructure, yeah. things like this. Yeah. And, I, and so I think the thing is, is that people think that some of that sounds very radical. Mm. But I think part of the... I think part of the question has to be, what are the people we're fighting against willing to do? And what are... the we as activists, organizers, um, whatever you want to say, mm-hmm. what are, what are, what are these movements willing to do? And mm-hmm. I think and, the word radical is being stolen and inverted also, you know, in its current usage as a, a negative, you know, what, what's fucking radical is being prepared to kill the planet and 50% of the species for for money and for for what for for power and money we're prepared to kill 50% of the species on the planet potentially in our lifetime no fish in the ocean by 2050 yeah. no large fish yeah large fish yeah. becoming extinct that's that's radical right it's radical to think that you can drop bombs and kill children it's radical to think that you can let some people sleep on the street while other people sleep in mansions i mean i think the concept in its negative form has been inverted by the right wing and used against people that are actually really rational and compassionate human beings and i think the sad thing is that once upon a time the word radical had this positive understanding of it means to get to the source, to the root, to to explore something that's never been explored and exposed. It radical idea and radical thought was considered a positive because it opened up something that had never been thought of before. But now it's become a way to criminalize people that express views that are not about death and destruction and environmental degradation and oh, they're just radical. They're radical people because they want you to stop killing other human beings. They're right. radical people because they don't want you to poison our food and our water. 
No, that's I mean, a great point. I just I find our acceptance of those sort of um, components of syntax and language really bizarre, and I find that the right wing are super super good at it at making democracy sound like. Um, this wonderful thing, but actually it's fascism or right. inverted totalitarianism or whatever you want to label it, you know. And I, I don't know, and it really annoys me because it it stops us from being able to think of anything that may be considered militant. It may be considered way over there, out there, mm-hmm. but it may actually be the idea that leads to a sort of more you know, thought-out version of that idea that is the solution or the pathway. Right. But no one's allowed to explore that stuff because you're marginalised and considered radical and in a bad way. So I think the right wing are really, really clever and I, I, I think they've done a great job of almost silencing activists' creativity and their capacity to really just go, all right, if we were really going to deal with this shit, how would we actually do it? Right. We probably have to shut down that coal station. Why don't we go and take out the infrastructure? Mm. Why don't we just go and do that? Oh, because mm. we'll be charged with, you know, some low-grade <clears throat> terrorism charge for interfering with critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And we'll all go to jail for 10 years and we'll be fined, you know, $100,000 each. And mm-hmm. so they apply all of the structure to us so that we can't even conceive of a way to do that. So this is the reason why I would think that you would want more people involved because the more people that are involved, the more you would have support for those kinds of actions. Like, so if you have more under, like above ground support for actions, that would be like somebody mm-hmm. going after infrastructure or something like that. Like the more well, above ground That's support. what happened with Break Free. Like that was the first attempt and that came out of Paris, actually. Everyone that... I know of around the world that was involved in that. We all met in Paris. Um, And that was an attempt at that to say, let's try a globally coordinated mass civilly disobedient act that shuts down infrastructure. So in Australia, we shut down the biggest coal port in the world and Germany did the same and you guys did stuff over here. Um, But it was trying to do it in a way that held the limit of we're going to block the structure, we're going to lock onto the structure, we're going to non-violently hold that space and cost them money and shut them down. Because we all know that the moment you do anything more than that, if you permanently damage the structure, you're a criminal and a radical, right? Um, And yet that structure is going to cause the death of, you know, a huge amount of people on the planet. So what's right. you know what's radical? Yeah, what, what's, what's rational? What's and you know is is that violence? Should you be punished with ten years in jail right. for shutting down a coal fire power plant that is killing millions of people around the planet every year? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's stupid. Hey, absolutely. Well, I like it. Jeez. Well, we've got a few minutes left. Have what we? else can we? Yeah, we do. Um, we might continue the conversation, actually. Yeah. I, I don't know. 
See, I don't know shit about technology. If I did, <laughs> our <laughs> friend actually like a Twitter. Or oh no, I need a Twitter. Everyone account. out there, oh, you, like oh we've God. got to deal with with Vince's aversion to Twitter. I'm going to try and teach him on. Oh yeah, that's right. That's something that has to happen. That. I have to learn Twitter. We should, because then I could promote the show more. I could promote what's going on, other I events, all those. It's Twitter just like, awesome. I feel like I've got Facebook down. Oh, but Facebook is crap. Twitter is like the wild, wild west. Like, that's where you should be. <laughs> uh, just, you know. What is Facebook if Twitter's the wild, wild uh, west? It's like a shopping mall. It's like Victorian. Mall. <laughs> it's like, it's like a Victorian mall. ballroom. No, no way. It's like a shopping mall. It's in, like a shopping mall. Yeah, in the Midwest. But I like, in the Midwest? <laughs> oh, God, well. Yeah, see, Samantha is getting a good taste of the Midwest. She is getting to spend time in the Rust Belt. After spending 10 days in Chicago and Northwest Indiana, Samantha will have a better idea of what's going on in the United States than 95% of the writers from the New York Times or the Washington Post <laughs> because they don't come to this area of the United States. Anyway, um, what could we talk about for a couple minutes? Look, I mean, I think... The issue for a lot of people right now, like I like what I noticed is that when I first got involved as an activist in 2006 was the biggest challenge was convincing Americans that things were in critical condition. Mm -hmm. Now, after 2008 financial collapse, worst recession since 1929, uh, after several political events, so on and so forth, people, you know, all kinds of issues coming up since 2008. Um the 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 most difficult thing now is to convince people that we're all not going to die sometime soon because there's this sense of like everyone is so cynical you know everyone's like oh shit well yeah you can do whatever you want to do but we're still we're we're screwed so you know you guys can do all the activist stuff you want my argument has always been even if we are screwed even if like you you read you know you look at somebody like Guy McPherson's work or you look at other people who are like look these things are locked in place these ecological biological indicators I don't even know how I describe them. Nonetheless, all I know is a bunch of stuff is locked in place and that I know within 10, 20, 50, 60 years, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. And by the time I'm my dad's age, we're going to be dealing with a much different natural environment than the one we were growing up in, which was already altered. That being said, I still would argue that it's important for people to Organic